Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey there, you've wandered onto the VUC, a weekly conference produced by IP Communications and VoIP Community. We would like to thank Simwood.com. Simwood can turn you as a developer into a telco. Our hosted PBX is from OnSip.com. You can get a URL that people can click to call you at OnSip.com slash GetOnSip. Speaking of SIP, we use the best PSTN and SIP conference bridge in the world, ZipDX.com. Our website at VUC.me is on Bluehost.com. And thanks to Voxbone for our world local rate dial-ins. Excellent, and thank you for the slate and the pre-road, Michael, and my, pre-roll, Michael, and Michael is going to drive this session, but we're really pleased to have for VUC 648, June 2nd, 2017, we're really pleased to have for his third appearance, ladies and gentlemen, Richard Newman. Hey, Richard, thank you. It's Thank you, and welcome again. Thank you guys for having me. I really enjoy it. We love your uh, mailings, and that's one of the reasons I prod you to come back. Uh, these folks know how to do things right. You know how you get these, hey, from, you know, like splash.com and stuff. Hey, we haven't seen you for a while. Yeah, well, that's because I don't care what you're doing. Well, <laughs> these guys, <laughs> they only mail you when they actually have something to say. And um, I recommend that you sign up. I'm sure ample information will be given to you by Rich and by Michael. Michael, I'm going to turn it over to you. But I love these sessions with uh, Sub2R. We're going to hear about their two 2K. <laughs> They're 4K. Wait a minute. Yes. Oh, when you get old, that's what happens. 4K camera. All right, Michael, before I say well, anything further. I don't, you know, I don't have a whole lot to say except, hi, Rich. Uh, what you been up to? <laughs> uh, buried in the lab um, and really finally hitting our goal, which was to get a 4K 30 frame per second camera. That really was 4K and 30 unique frames a second. Uh, and it turned out to be more of a challenge than we ever imagined. Um, a year ago, if you don't mind, I'll back up and give you a little kind of a history behind this. Please, please do, ago, please do, because some some people will see this for the first time. So we're t- we're not talking about um, we're not talking about this kind of a camera, and we're not talking about this kind of a camera. We're talking about a different kind of a camera altogether. It's that kind of a camera. Yes. So, so we. Um, yeah. For those who don't know us, we designed a an open architecture camera. And by that, we mean every part of the imaging pipeline from the minute the light hits the lens and until it leaves the camera is accessible to you. So it's either con- customizable, configurable, or programmable. Uh, and that was the challenge we set for ourselves. And that one of the aspects of that is that the camera board itself is interchangeable. So we started with a 1080p 4K image sensor. And our goal was to make a really good base camera out of this thing. Um, A year ago, almost a year, exactly a year ago, we debuted at Maker Faire Bay Area. And we didn't have 4K at the time. 
we had 1080p and Greg was frantically trying to get us anything 4K. And I remember we didn't have it the first day. It was a three-day fair. We didn't have it the first day. The second morning, it was pouring rain. It was about as miserable as you can imagine. We didn't pay the $5,000 for for high-speed internet. So we were, when Greg called in the morning and said, I've got 4K, we had to download it onto Vonda's phone, take the firmware off of her phone and load it into the camera and try and get 4K running. At that time, we had 4K at 15, absolutely unstable. I mean, it would just, it would run for a few seconds and then Surge would relaunch. It would run for a few seconds and Surge would relaunch. We had three controls. We had gain, exposure, and black level. And that was it. It was all the controls we had over the camera. So fast forward to December of last year, we were on our way to a meeting in Hollywood. And this seems to be norm for us. We were downloading new firmware in the car on the way to the meeting in Beverly Hills so that we could get 4K at 22 and a half frames a second. <laughs> Not quite where we, where we wanted to get. Um, since December, we have hit 4K at 30. We have an entire suite of UVC controls, which is all your you know, contrast hue, brightness, saturation, sharpness, gamma. Uh, we have a full suite of I squared C controls now. Uh, we have auto controls like auto white balance and auto exposure. And I think the thing that really made a difference for us was when we got down so deep into the architecture that we now can characterize every single pixel. And I, my background is in, is in high tech companies in the Bay Area, and I've worked for a number of semiconductor companies. And I sh looking back, it should have been obvious. You know, you, you look at, you know, 10 or 13 million pixels on a on something that's a few millimeters on a side, and you expect them all to run and behave exactly the same way. And you know, when you really think about it, that's wishful thinking, right? Every one of those pixels behaves differently. And so to get a really good image, what you have to do is go through the process of first um, characterizing every one of those pixels and then giving them a factor to normalize them. And when you do that, then all the pixels act the same way and you get a much, much better picture. So that was one of the, the big challenges we faced was developing our own technique for characterizing the image sensor. Now, let me stop you there. When, 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 if I'm buying a camera from Sony, because I'm in the broadcast space, so I'm going to buy one of their high-end cameras. This is all in, you know, in firmware that's on the optical block that I don't have to think about, right? This is all... Correct. Something that's sort of baked into the product. And, and because in, in their case, if something goes wrong with that camera and they have to replace the optical block, they're going to you know, pull out a module, give me a module. and They presume absolute interchangeability of the parts. So what you're talking about is really low level, like mapping of the pixels for their default behaviors. And sort of, I presume also then dealing with the fact that you may have defective pixels that you have to do a little something, a little interpolation or at least elimination of defective. You know, we have we have kind of a, a phrase here that we call troll snot. And that's when you have, you know, hyper accentuated pixels and it just blows glitter all over the place, right? And what you find is that that over time and in different circumstances, the pixels will act will behave differently. So if you're in a hot environment versus a cold environment and over time that changes. So one of the things we wanted to make sure of is that as 
somebody is working with our camera that when a new defect shows up or they want to recalibrate the camera, they'll be able to do that by just invoking the, the, the characterization process, which means you just put a, a lens cap over the camera and, and let it run through its process of characterization and it re-defines um, all the pixels. Most high-end cameras actually have that, like DLSRs. They'll have a function that says you, know, you can recalibrate for defective pixels and it'll tell you, put the lens cap on, press this button and wait a few seconds. And then your camera's back calibrated again. How does it deal with, if, if you're calibrating in the dark like that, how does it deal with white variations in, in white level? You mean ones that are, ones that are um, well, you get, you get three situations of a defective pixel. You get a dead pixel, right. which means no, no um, current at all. You get stuck pixels, which always return a maximum amount of current. And then you get the ones that are impulsive, which bounce up and down. So on either end of the, end of the spectrum, if you have a hot pixel or a dead pixel, the algorithm is look at the surrounding same color pixels, take an average of that, and that is now my new value. So that's how you replace the ones that have an absolute on either end. The ones in the middle, you can, you can make a choice. You can say, I'll either just replace them with the average of the, of the neighboring pixels, or I will give it a factor and say, every time I see this pixel is 100, I'm actually going to give it a value of 80 or 60 or whatever the right valuation is. Um, so it goes through that process of mapping them out. And we were pretty surprised in this sensor, which is, which is just a very uh, a small commercial uh, sensor. We had less than one third of 1%, which were what we call naughty pixels, you know, the ones we had to take care of. So it was, we were pretty surprised that it was that low. Um, it's pretty amazing that the rest of them are all pretty much behaving within a standard deviation. And is that across like, production production batches? That's across production batches. We have um, sensor said the same sensor from a number of batches, and it seems to be fairly consistent. It's a pretty, pretty amazing sensor. Very cool. Be interesting to see in the long haul how that plays out. Whether there's any, you know, variation over time coming from the manufacturer, or, or even what the life of the sensor is. Whether whether or not it uh, it's offered. Will, you know, if you use yeah, there will be there'll be there'll be diff, uh, differentiations by batch. Um, within a batch and and over time, depending upon the environment that the camera is in, if you have it in a room, you know, where it's pretty well, you know, temperature uh, stable and humidity stable, it, it's going to have one effect. If you have it outside sitting on a pole in the weather or in the Arctic or in a submarine where there's harsh environments, you're going to see that you're going to see a distinctive change in the in the pixel act, um, the way it acts um in in different environments so we thought that if you're going to do it if you're going to make a characterization process do it right do one that you know will be able to recalibrate the camera anytime the user deems that it's necessary to do so heaven forbid one ends up you know in space and then it's going to be in a very harsh environment and it's going to need to be calibrated probably yeah. a fair bit <laughs> you know a harsher environment that we were actually looking at well maybe similar to space is um is in a linear accelerator or a cyclotron where the gamma rays leak out of the system and they just beat the heck out of a, of a, of a sensor. And they, their cameras generally last less than 30 days. They throw them out. So wow. 
you know, with our camera, what, what we're hoping is to catch their interest because you can simply house the entire processor in a very thick lead case and then just have the camera board that you toss out every month when you finally fry it. Very interesting. Um, we would show the sample video, but showing it inside of a Hangout seems rather on the pointless side. So uh, what was notable about the making of it? Um, I mean, how did, how did you go about that? What was Other than three days of no sleep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you know, you can talk about 4K and you can talk about 30 frames a second. And, you know, it's now just about as common a phrase as, as you can imagine. You know, my, my phone does 4K, my cat does 4K, whatever it is. You know. But it's really when you see it that it makes that you understand what, what 4K means. And I think Igor brought it to light very well when he said, you can see texture with 4K. When you look at something, you can actually see what the texture is, and that's how much detail you get. Um, when we, when Greg finally got us 4K running, we were just blown away by how good it looked, and we knew that we had to put something together to to show the world because we kind of gone run silent, run deep for three or four months while we were working on it. And um, one of the funny things is, is we have a small studio here in the lab, and we were looking at things to, to film and Serge mistakenly asked Vonda if he, if she had any shoes that he could film. And uh, the next thing you knew there was, you know, he came down with this huge pile of shoes and that was, uh, but he loved them because they, you know, they have texture, they have color. And so we were grabbing everything we could find. Um, I think the watch is amazing when you look at it because we were down to the point where you were, you know, focusing on the scratches and the little gears that were moving inside the watch. Um, and it's 4K is really astounding. And, and we hope that um, that this will pique people's interest in our camera and in our technology. Um, the, the frustrating thing is when we were all through with it, because this is the first time we'd actually had to have the opportunity of working with 4K on our camera. At the end of those three days, Serge put this little video together and then he looked at it and said, I'm going to refilm everything. Oh. <laughs> no, I can make it better. <laughs> yeah, I am going to uh, do what I can to pull that in so we can take a look at it. Um, uh, we'll see uh, just exactly how well that's going to work. But uh, but in any event, the... Um, and by the way, when uh, people view the YouTube, we recommend mm -hmm. that they pause it and look at an individual frame. I mean, it's, it's if you can see it in 4K, it's stunning. And that's been compressed three times before you get it. Right. And that's one of the things about your really good video shows the defects in codec. Um, as long as we've been compressing video digitally, this has been the case. It's a really fine footage. Um, shows you the faults in every single um, frame yeah. of your video. Yeah, we're under the impression that human beings should never be filmed in 4K, especially close up. <laughs> Actually, I, there's a funny little story about that, and that is, um, we're not going to hear the audio, but it is working. That's good. Um, back when HD became a factor in the broadcast business, um, which was, uh, people don't realize this, but it was back in 1999, because I was in that business and selling equipment to TV stations. And One of the things that started to happen when it was being installed locally was um, somebody opened up a school and started certifying makeup artists as HD capable. Yeah. Because the talent, the local newscasters, especially as they were getting on in years, were concerned that they weren't going to look good enough. And so you had to have an HD certified makeup artist. And, and there was turnover of people who were 
you know, talent gets what talent wants. They're high dollar people. And, and uh, it impacted the industry in a substantial way. Um, and there's been a trend towards younger and younger talent as we've gone to better and better technology for transmitting their pictures. Yeah. So, so we were joking. Um, Roger is our, our image pipeline guy. And he was formerly with one of those, the big sensor companies. And, and I said, you know, we need a, we need a soft focus you know, an auto soft focus or an auto airbrush function. And he said, don't laugh, they exist. Um, especially in cameras in Asia where they will actually, they do a facial scan um, and will remove blemishes. You can change your facial features, whatever you want. And it's built into the camera to, to automatically make you look better. Cause I guarantee you, I don't look good in 4K. <laughs> and where can I get yeah. one of these cameras? <laughs> I need one. It's now. kind of funny. There are, I won't go into it because it's not for mixed company, but there was, um, there are a lot of things you have to do when you're dealing with Japanese markets that involve image processing in particular ways. So, um, and, and having, having spent 20 years working for a graphics company, um, we have sold into these applications. Um, this is interesting. Uh, I can now run this. We'll see what happens. Uh, just a second. I'm going to, um, if you click on me, Randy, uh, we will see yeah. there. the teaser go. We're not going to right. Yeah, we don't have the we don't have the audio, but I did put the URL in. Yeah, look at that. So there you go. Um, that's where if you could see this at full resolution, the texture would be really impressive, and also the texture in the reflection and the difference between the reflection and the original. And you need to click, you need to click, if you go to the URL, I I put it in IRC, but of course not everybody's watching IRC, but when you do find this thing, you need to go to the gear icon because you're probably not in 4K. Right. You go over Uh, here and you do this and you do that. And we're just going to make my computer work really hard now. There you go. Hang on. But the the point is people should go look at this. It's, It's pretty amazing, really. Yes. And, and this actually points to, this particular frame points to what is, in my mind, one of the big values of 4K in the space where we exist, which is not necessarily entertainment or pure technology, but in the video conferencing space as a display function to be able to say, I'm going to put these 9720Ps up full resolution in an array. And so you can see the reaction of the person that you're talking to um, when you're doing that multi-way um, video conference. Um, that's, you know, 4K as a display surface and potentially as a transmission medium, but not necessarily that you have, everybody's got a 4K camera because um, maybe that won't be in video conferencing the way it goes. Uh, that's at least in the short term. The center picture there is the camera that we had at Maker Faire a year ago. And things about a foot square. Um, it was so fragile, we put it in a plexiglass housing, which Surge dubbed the Pope Mobile. <laughs> And from there, we've gotten down to this nice, compact little beast that you see in the, the right and left pictures. Now, what I'm seeing is, I think I have to reload the page because, there we go. There, get back to running. The detail is lovely, even when it's scaled down. Um, okay, so you've got one. Is there just one, or is there more than one? <laughs> <laughs> There's two dozen uh, at the moment. Um, most of them are, one of them's in a refrigerator company, uh, frozen storage company in, in Southern California. And the rest are being used for evaluation to fine tune the design. Um, right now we're looking at two options. We hope that we can secure funding and do this right. 
um, now I'm, I, I feel very confident and, and very proud of where our camera is, that it's ready for prime time, that we can, it's stable. There's, there's a lot of uh, image processing tools that people can use to get really good pictures. Um, that's a key thing to note about the video is that we did no post-processing of the image except to edit it together. So all of the, all of the image processing controls, the, the hue, saturation, contrast, all of that was done on camera. Nothing, we didn't do any modification of the image post-processing. But I think she's ready for prime time. And we are in the process of trying to find a, an investor or we will go grassroots. And we're working with some CMs to, that are willing to work with us and making it possible for us to do a grassroots launch of this. So that's, we've, we were waiting till we got to the point where we were really proud of what we had and felt comfortable that it was stable and could send it off to the world and, and people could replicate what we do with it. Speaking of the world, Rich, um, I assume that over the years, because it's been a few years, uh, you've received feedback from people. Yes. Um, can you, can you uh, talk a little about that? Because I, I think that you've, um, this is a new phenomenon relatively from the, let's say, when the original, you know, 20 years ago when people were developing things, they didn't get much feedback. Now we've got the internet, everybody's connected. Uh, and you in particular have done a lot of work on this. So what, what kind of feedback did you get? What kind of, uh, was, are you speaking to anybody in the medical field, um, you know, past possible applications, any of that kind of thing? So we, actually the way that this began is we had built this camera for ourselves and to solve a problem, we needed an open architecture camera. And we started posting videos and the people that of what the camera could do because Surge likes the likes to do that kind of thing. And so we, we, we posted those and people found us and they said, Oh my God, I need this camera. I need a camera that does this. And it finally got to a point where we said, you know what, we need to split it out. We need to make the camera its own company. And we spent over a year talking to people. So anytime somebody sends um, a reservation for a camera, we ask what you're going to do with it. And oftentimes I'll get back to them and get into some really nice discussions about, okay, what are you going to do with this? How are you going to use this? Um, what can we do to make this better? And, you know, like the streaming community said, well, we really hate plugging a headset into something else. It would be great if we only had one thing we could plug into. And so that's, that's why we added the auxiliary um, headphone jack into the camera itself. And then we found out they don't want it on the front because they don't want anything dangling in front of the camera. So, you know, okay, best place to put it is in the back. Um, working with my, my son on uh, deep sea robotics applications, he said, what do we need a microphone for? We're gonna put it in a, in a, in a bottle and we're gonna put it 4,000 meters beneath the ocean. It's not gonna hear anything. So we made the microphones removable so that those channels can be used for low bandwidth data that gets interlaced onto the video stream. So now when you put a camera into an environment, you wanna, wanna know what's, how deep was I? What was the water temperature? What was the salinity? What was my, my GPS location? At that exact moment of that frame, that data is interla interlaced with the, the video stream. So it's right there, all that data is captured together. So we've done as much as we could to, um, to incorporate that. We can't, make everybody happy. 
Um, one of the other cool things we did is I know when I'm working with something and I want to modify it, I'm always looking for a place to get voltage power off of the board. So you're always looking for something to solder onto and, you know, wire onto and you think, oh God, I hope I don't, you know, burn it out or, or break the part or whatever. So we've put an isolated power supply inside the camera so you can expand and put your own modules on it. So trying to make it as adaptable as possible without being overly cumbersome. Um, right now we support USB 3.0 on a, on a C connector and gig E. But the gig E is in this model is permanent, but what we're going to do later on is to make the secondary IO modular because everybody goes, oh, I want Thunderbolt or I want HDMI or I want this output or I want an optical output. And it's like, okay, wait a minute. You put all I, those- I need, I need 10 gig E because I want truly uncompressed. I want four by four out. Right. So, you know, people are going to, you know, it's like, okay, wait a minute. We can't make a camera that's 12 feet wide because it's got every connector you want on it. But if we make that connector and it's, and it's you know, it's Phi chip that controls it, a module, then- you can have a an optional output that matches what you want. And so that's kind of the mindset behind how we're, we're developing the camera. Well, the modularity will, will take you to different markets, right? And that's yeah. because you'll be able to configure for, with a slight level, a slight increase in complexity, you'll be able to configure for all kinds of different circumstances. So in present time, how are you encoding to get 4K off of it? Is it... Um, so right now we're using an MV12. Encoding is always, okay. Encoding is always sort of a, it can be good, it can be not so good, right? So Right. Well, so right now we support uh, a YUV format, which 4K you max out at about 22 and a half frames a second. 23 really if you push it, but that's about the max bandwidth for USB. Um, we support very close to what is the cinema DNG type of output, which is pre-demosaicing. Um, so if you want just the raw, bare image, we support that. And then we've gone to an NV12 format that allows us to get 4K at 30 over USB 3. We are also almost, and it's taken a year to get there, almost have our own H.264 working. Um, we have some more gremlins to hammer out of that. And when we do, then we'll have an, you know, an MJPEG um, wrapper for the video. Cool. And so what have you, and you said you're using Microsoft's camera app to make sample video so far. What, what else have people been using uh, to get video off? Because when you support a very limited codec set, that oftentimes describes, constrains your tools selection, right? Well, that's why, that's why the, the um, H.264 is going to be important because that's what's going to be necessary for, you know, a lot of applications to be able to even see 4K. That was our... But that's been a big problem for us is not a lot of applications will take 4K. I mean, and recording it is really difficult. So Igor has written our own preview um, application and he's probably gonna wind up writing our own recording application to go with the camera so that you can, you know, you don't have a problem recording the video. Once it's recorded, you can you can edit it with, with almost anything, but streaming it and, um, and recording it is difficult to find yeah. something that will handle it. Yeah, they had to handle both the encoding and the bandwidth requirements. But mm -hmm. once you're editing, you're, you're kind of into non-real-time things at that point. Um, and I'm just looking at my my vMix um, controls, which indicate that it does use NV12. So it should work for you. 
NV12 um, only up to 1080. It doesn't like NV12 at 4K. It'll take 4K if it has an MPEG wrapper on it because it's direct show. Oh, I see. It's not see. MMF. So that's um, the they did, they did something um, new in the very latest release, and that is uh, they now uh, use a special version of VLC as a way of bringing in RTMP streams. Which conceptually opens up anything means anything that VLC will read, you can also or play, you can also uh, access. So that's perhaps a an VLC, Yeah, VLC won't see 4K. It'll see 1080p, but it won't see it won't see 4K unless it's in. Well, I don't know because we don't have a we don't have an M, uh, an MPEG wrapper on it yet. But um, right now, VLC we can't get it to work with ours, and we we would love to use VMix, but we can't get VMix to work either. Uh, I can introduce you. Well, if you you don't already know Martin Sinclair, who um, is the CEO of VMix, um, no. great guy. Great guy. He would he would. Um, in fact, and he will be in Atlanta next week for StreamCon. Uh, it would be a good time to talk to him because he'll be in the right time zone. Um, yeah, they're they're nice people, and the, you know they they got into 4K literally two years ago. Uh, it was when Telestream announced Wirecast doing. 4K. I don't think it's shipping yet, but it's been announced. They were like, uh, okay, whatever. <laughs> 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 anyway, um, all right. So, so how about not the 4K camera? That's the news. The 1080p camera, the 720p cameras. Have they been going out to people? Have they found homes? Have they found user stories? We've got um, on the 720p cameras. I think the most interesting one is we have a guy using two of them side by side one of them in an IR mode and one of them in a vis uh, visible light mode to record Aborigines fire dancing in Australia. I thought that was kind of, and he had, some of the videos he posts are pretty wild, you know? So it's like, cool. That's exactly what we want people to be doing with it. Um, the 1080p and 4k camera, it's the same, same camera. So we're still waiting to get that launched out to the public. Um, and it's just a matter of now of making it happen. I mean, I think our hardware is stable. Our, our, that was one of the things that we, we really are insistent upon is that when you build a camera that you can turn it on and leave it on and it runs. And so Serge has had his running, I think about four months now, continuously, never unplugged it. And so that's pretty good stability for us. You know, we look at that saying, okay, somebody who is making their living streaming doesn't want a camera choking mid mid broadcast right if i yeah if i'm if i'm putting it way up high in a tree looking at a bird's nest then uh i'm not climbing up that tree again so i need it to stay running once it's up there and i need remote access to whatever i'm going to tweak because you know, it's 85 feet up in the tree staring at an eagle's nest or 4,000 meters under the ocean looking at you know geothermal vents or something you know you just can't yeah. go oh excuse me i have to press the reset button now <laughs> yeah exactly exactly and and you know thank goodness for fpgas and things where you you can at least and you can extend the utility of the product over time through firmware and and such like that and, well and, and part of the advantage of that is that we want people to embed their own code you know we we want people to play with the fpga and to be able to if they don't like the demosaicing algorithm that what we use, they can write their own. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it's it's supposed to be a playground. That that was Is the there, idea. Um, as you as you're getting you know getting close to to starting to ship these things, is there 
Um, that that implies certain sort of end user facing things, SDKs or or documentation at least, to allow people to at least know where the sharp things are buried in the playground. Um, is that coming along? <laughs> um, we are collecting that information. Um, it was funny. I was talking to um, a company the other day, and they said, "Well, okay, so how many how many hardware engineers do you have?" And I said, "One." And he looked at me and he said one and i said yeah and that's the answer i'm going to give you for any other question you ask from here on out <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but that's you know that it, we're not talking about ikigami or sony or hitachi denshi or someone like that right i mean that's yeah. um, they would have they would have a specialist dealing only with pin configurations on certain kinds of ic's and, and, and clearly not the case apple has 800 engineers doing what roger does i've got one guy and and you know, Apple has 800 of them. And I look at what we've done with one image pipeline engineer and one hardware engineer and one software guy. And I look at this and I think that's not bad. You know, we've, we've built a really fantastic little camera with a handful of people, all self-funded, not a dime from the outside world. So, so if you were looking for investors, would some of those, you know, players in industry who are using sensors already be amongst the people who might be interested in you or is it some is it is a pure investment kind of circumstance yeah i so, opportunity for partnerships i guess is what i'm saying yes yes there are uh, my background is actually not in tech my background has been for three decades as a cfo for high-tech companies but in, in finance and we look at it as there's two kinds of money there and, and this is not meant to be derogatory but there's dumb money and smart money Dumb money is basically somebody who's going to invest in you from a purely financial standpoint. They bring nothing to the table except for a checkbook. And then there's smart money. Somebody who owns a fab who could help you. Yeah, there are people who own the fab. There are people who own, you know, who make the parts. There are people who are in an industry that can leverage that industry into, into more markets and opening more opportunities. We are examining more on the smart things. We're looking at uh, a company, right? We're, what I've gone back now 10 times, I think, to a company that I think would be a great partner um, from a hardware from a hardware standpoint. They provide a lot of the components we use. Um, we've had a lot of help from our suppliers. You look at people like Evitar who make the lenses for our camera. I mean, this is insanely good optics that we get from these little 12 millimeter lenses. And they've dumped a lot of lot of support for us. PSC, which is a company that does um, cooling and, and, and housings, have done all of our, our thermal dynamic work and our housing work. And the amount of help we've gotten from them has been, has been amazing. So those kinds of partnerships are good. And then as I alluded to before, we were down in Hollywood um, at the end of last year, and we're beginning to get catch the attention of people. And when they see the quality of the video we can create with this thing that costs less than a lens for one of their normal cameras, um, we're hoping that that's going to spark a lot more attention. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the uh, New Zealand firewalking thing, it, I mean, that's just such a novel application that when you were talking about that, what it, what it said to me was, wow, I, it's almost like I was going to be doing sort of like a, uh, an ultraviolet based, uh, you know, green screen kind of process where I'm shooting the actor, but I also want to shoot the UV exposure that's then going to be used to composite them into the film later on. Um, 
But is 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 UV a possibility? UV is a possibility. Um, IR is better because CMOS is more sensitive to IR. As you get up in the UV spectrum, you begin to it begins to to um, exceed what you can get with um, with CMOS. But there are ways to to filter it. Um, the little 720p camera I'm running right now has got a four micron um, pixel, which is hypersensitive in both directions on the spectrum. So it really is nice for for capturing wavelengths that are outside the visible on either end, which is one of the reasons we like it. Um, but yeah, you can do, I mean, that's, again, one of the things we designed the camera for is, you know, hey, if you want to play with filters, if you want to play with different um, applications, it's easy to do that and affordable to do that, you know. Hmm. Very interesting. And and are we holding the price? Because I, I I remember where the price was when last we talked. Are we are we holding to that, uh, uh, or have, have that evolved? I am I am trying not to budge on the price. Getting CMs to work with you in low volumes to hit that price is going to be really painful. Um, basically, it ends up being a, a break even for us to to in in volumes less than a thousand to hit that price. But you know we sort of hit what is reasonable and the best we can do under the circumstances. I mean, the, the, the FPGA alone in this thing runs, if you buy it, if you buy it one off from DigiKey, you're looking at $400 for the, for the uh, FPGA alone. We are, we can get a better price than that, but I mean, it's the, the, that's the most, that's the killer component right there is the FPGA. What about the optics? What, what sort of price are the lenses? Uh, are you sitting down? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's just I, I have a son who's into 4K video, and he's uh, twenty uh, bucks. You're kidding! Twenty yeah. bucks. <laughs> After Rich was here last time, I, I I sprung for a teeny little camera just to pl- be able to play with these C mounts lenses. Um, this camera actually comes from Lithuania. Um, wow. It's a it's a cute little camera, but the the lens was like yeah, twenty bucks. And this is a little zoom. It's it's totally manual zoom lens with uh, zoom focus and iris, and um, it's actually plugged in and working. But yeah. I, I'm not going to show you what the video looks like right now because we're talking about a different camera. But the video doesn't so, look very good on this one, by the way. That's a <laughs> oh, very that's out of very out of focus. Oh, very out of focus. Sorry, oh, I can't see on the small screen. But anyway, um, Avatar makes these beautiful lenses, and then we actually had fun one time. We went and built an adapter and put Canon old glass onto our camera. So we made a speed adapter and then we were able to, uh, yeah, to uh, bolt old Canon lenses, which you can get on eBay. I got a, a 70 by 210 zoom and I put it, uh, I got it like for 19 bucks. Thing wow. looked brand new. And yeah, 19 bucks for the lens and the, and the adapter is probably like 150 bucks or something like that. Yeah, well, we built our own adapter because no one makes an adapter that goes from that down to where we needed it. So we built our own adapter, but um, that's again, what we wanted to do is we, we wanted to stick with a, with a lens size that gives you a lot of op- opportunity, um, but isn't going to break the bank. If you want to go out and say, I want to buy 10 lenses cause I, I want to play with them. Okay. And there are a lot of people that make 12 millimeter lenses. Um, we also support powered optics. So if you want to, put a powered optic module on there. We give you the uh, the interfaces for doing that. So you can have power zoom, focus, aperture, um, IR cutout, whatever you want on the on the power side of it. So I would think that those sorts of adapters, while not commonplace, 
Uh, that's the sort of thing that people can uh, 3D print. Uh, and if, it, if it's not yeah. something for like long-term use, you just sort of 3D print up the adapter and away you go. And if you're going to a standard, you know, Sony mount or a Canon mount or whatever. Can, you get, can you get enough accuracy on a 3D printed device for that? Sure. Well, you, really, you could have one machined, but... Yeah. But the size of the, you know, when you start getting into Canon, Canon lenses, you realize that these things are designed to to hit, you know, an area that's much larger than than the chip that we're using. So you've got the ability of, of you know, basically you're going to lose some of the image area um, because the the focal the focal plane of the um, of the 35 millimeter lens is is going to be bigger than the area of your chip. Um, you kind of want it that yeah, way. Yeah, because they're, well, they're designed for, you know, an APC sensor or a 35 sensor or something like that, which is, you know, much, Actually, much they're designed smaller. for 35 millimeter of roll film, you know, the old right, standard right, right. <laughs> real film. Yeah, yeah, very um, cool. But you, um, you were talking about applications. One of the other things that we do is we give you access to what they call the GPIO controls of the camera. So you can synchronize our camera to an outside source. And one of the things that... that um, sports analytics people have, have asked us about is being able to do things like put a sensor on a bicycle pedal and then be able to synchronize the camera to somebody who's pedaling. So that when you're analyzing their gait, the pedal is always in the exact same place when the, when the frame is captured. So now you can see, okay, I've modified the, the cranks, I've modified the pedal position or the way that the rider is sitting, and I want to be able to compare the exact same location twice in a row, being able to synchronize to something that like a bicycle pedal is, is important to them. We don't know what people are going to do. We just want to give you the tools to be able to do that. Cool. Ken, 4K from Klucon, buddy. <laughs> yeah, no, the only thing I'm thinking of right now is how much mass are we talking about here for, you know, like a pan tilt, you know, an automatic pan tilt mount? So the camera is passively cooled. It is not light. It weighs in about 450 grams. So she's a, we call her piggy. So she's a hefty pig. Um, if you don't care about um, passive cooling, meaning you're not going to use the onboard microphones, you could replace that with an active cooling, a small fan, uh, and probably reduce that 75 to 100 grams. There's an awful lot of weight that we have is basically in, in the heat sink on the, um, on the SODIM memory. And on the um, the gap pad that connects the uh, the FPGA to the top plate. Not too bad. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not that heavy, but but it is not. You know, it's not a little featherweight. You know, I would. You know, if you, people have asked about putting it on a drone, and you're gonna have to have a drone with you know some hefty umph to it, but it would work. Well, then you've got the issue of how are you gonna? What are you gonna do to record or backhaul the output? Um, because it's you know high bandwidth output, if there has to be a reason for doing it, right? Yeah. So one of the one of the things we we originally didn't have in the design, and it may not come out in the first design, but but it is on our roadmap, is to put a little um, is to put a little um, uh, SD card on there, so that you can mm -hmm. record onto the camera. You, you, you might you might actually be be better off to put in like a little uh, PCIe slot uh, or that kind of thing. Tim, go ahead, buddy. Yeah, so a couple of things. One of which is if it's on drone, then, um, hey, you get the downdraft, so you get your cooling out of that. Um, right. So, so you, you might not need quite as much heat sink. But on the, on the SD card thing, I keep seeing, I'm, I'm in a kind of 
privacy circles and stuff like that. I keep seeing a request for um, but encrypted uh, storage of video in camera so that as, you, as you're shooting your, your footage of the demonstration or the, the revolution or whatever, then the, as it hits the SD card, it's already encrypted. Um, yeah, so we, even, if they, if, even if it's taken off you uh, at that point, it's still encrypted. Yeah, Igor has been playing with asymmetrical encryption that can be done on the camera. So the only way to, to intercept it would be you'd actually have to get in there and get into the, to the connector between the sensor and the FPGA grab the image because after that it's gone you know it's encrypted and you can't touch it i think i think that's that's for this particular market that's super interesting and it, and it's uh, it's just that it has to be encrypted by the time it leaves the camera or by the time it's stored because i mean you know it, it's about um protecting sources and that kind of stuff so um so yeah i'm if that was there i'm i'm pretty sure there are a bunch of people who'd be super interested in that yeah, Igor's been doing Igor's been doing a lot of, of research into that, and we could easily support you know asymmetrical encryption on board. So I guess um, the trick then is how do you get the keys on there? But that um that's that's kind of interesting. Maybe we should uh, have a little side chat about that. Sometime. Well, I think Tim, you probably have the answer to that question. Don't well, you? I'm not sure I do actually. <laughs> I'm not sure there are the right things on the on the camera to be doing it. But you know. Um, Certainly, it's an interesting space for, for, for me. Yeah, we realize that there's, there's some opportunities for, for doing things like that, in, uh, especially in certain uh, teleconferencing applications where people want a secured video link. And the best way to do it is just put the encryption inside the camera so it never, you know, the, the video stream is, is encrypted before it ever leaves. Right. Cool. Kind of redefines what an SD card is all about, doesn't it? <laughs> um, a secret device, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and, and, and uh, I, what I've been looking at is you know different storage mechanisms. I bought myself a new computer, and yes, it's got a little SD slot, but it also has a couple of MSATA little slots that look vaguely like PCIe slots, mini PCIe slots, and then it's got a couple of mini PCIe slots, and you know these things are quite small, and you can put all kinds of different things in them. You could put a a 5G radio in there, or you could put um, some high bandwidth uh, storage um, in there, and and uh, it's all that modularity and expandability again. And if you're if you're writing some programming for the FPGA, then more power to you. You can uh, do some good stuff. Yeah, now, I've got a quick question about the FPGA. Um, um, all the uh, what you program an FPGA, the code, I suppose. Is that all your own work? Yes. So, so all of the, all of the, asp, um, the applications, um, including, we use a MIPI-based sensor. So even the MIPI deserialization code, we wrote ourselves. Um, and we found that it was necessary to be able to make it efficient enough to run on an FPGA. An FPGA, you know, you really have limited resource. And so to be able to get everything to work, you really have to make it efficient. You have to make it thin, um, very effective code. You can't have a lot of, a lot of um, surplus, you know, uh, stuff in there. So a lot of things we'd like to do, we can't because we're, we're very uh, streamlined. And that's one of the, the challenges we faced with compression is that compression likes a lot of computational space to play with. And, 
you don't have a lot of it, especially when you're running 4K at 30 frames a second. That's a lot of data. And so making that run efficiently without lag, recording it's different, but when you want to stream it live and you don't want latency in the, in the pipeline, you have to do a lot of parallel processing and managing of that pipeline to get things to go quickly. So we've ended up having to write basically every bit of code that's inside the, the camera is our unique IP. So H.264, uh, that just implies lag. I mean, it's a group of frames-based thing. There will be lag. Um, MJPEG sees a lot of use in this sort of mezzanine kind of application because it's still um, intra-frame and not inter-frame. Um, but the bandwidth considerations are, are mighty still because what 4K30 at H.264 at least as it's being done by Netflix now, requires 30 megabits uh, yeah. continuously. Um, or MJPEG would be you know, vastly higher than that. But hey, somebody can do that, right? Because the FPGA vendors even have sample code out there for that sort of thing. Um, I don't know what it would cost to get access to it, but, but it's been done. So what we find is <clears throat> that an FPGA vendor will say, I've got this code and you know, you can try it out on, on your FPGA. And it winds up being a bit of code that somebody wrote almost as a proof of concept. So it won't necessarily be an efficient bit of code, and it won't be a bit of code that interacts with other code that you want to write um, that has to work with it. And so by the time you get through looking at it and trying to play with it and getting it to work, you realize that you're better off starting from scratch and writing your own code. Um, time and time again, we've said, ah, oh, great, there's a bit of code we can go out and use, right? We don't have to write it. And by the time you get into it, it's like, no, by the time we make this work efficiently on the platform we have, we'd be better off doing it from scratch ourselves. Yeah. And at least in that, in that way, you know, you've got maximum utilization of the real estate available on the FPGA, as opposed to it was convenient, but it uses, you know, 50% more of the available transistors or whatnot. Yeah, I mean, you know, they they can write a they can write a compression algorithm that takes you know ninety percent of the 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 space on the FPGA, and they don't care because they're not going to do anything else. And they just say, "See, it works." Mm -hmm. But you've got all the other applications you have to have running at the same time, and so you realize that that's like never going to fit. So, part of what you've got to do is 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 basically start from scratch and say, "This is what Plus, I want the process to do." Plus, they want to upsell you to the next bigger FPGA. So, of course, always that. <laughs> yeah, always they always that. want you know they always want you to buy the next bigger one. Um, and finding a finding an FPGA company that's willing to work with you is is difficult because you know a lot of times they look at you and say, "Well, who who are you? You know, you're a little company. You're five people. You know, we don't give a crap." And how, if many, you're not how many how many thousands of of units per order are you ordering? They want to see. <laughs> They want to see a minimum of 100,000 units per year guaranteed with a past history of 100,000 units a year that they can look at. We may never sell 100,000 cameras a year. I mean, that's not our market. You know, we're not going to be, you know, a consumer webcam for grandma to look at, the, you know, her grandkids. I mean, this is, this is designed to fit between the webcam and the pro cam and fit in that market where people want professional quality, but they don't want to go spend $5,000. So we're looking to be in that mid-road. So I may not, we may never sell 100,000 units a year. I mean, I would love to sell 100,000 units a year, but 
you know. Speaking of selling in units a year, as we come up to the end of an hour, um, when do you expect we're going to be shipping these some of these things to people? Yes. When? You know, I gave up making predictions on that because every time I say, oh, we're going to do it in this period of time. I will say this. We are we have a stable hardware design. We've got stable firmware design. We have an image we're really proud of. And myself and the two other founders are really right now trying to make the decision of whether we launch this in grassroots or not. Um, if we launch at grassroots, it'll probably be in the next, you know, three to four weeks that we announce that. We'd open a pre-sale. Um, what's going to make the decision on that is if we can find a CM who's willing to work with us. And we have a certain target manufacturing costs that they have to hit in order for it to be reasonable. Um, which is, on a side note, I've been trying to teach economic order quantity to CMs lately. <laughs> um, and they don't quite get it. You know, I go to them and I say, look, how many units do I have to build till the price hits this? And I get a quote back for 500 units. That isn't what we want. And I said, well, that didn't answer my question. My question is, how many units do we have to build till the price gets here? And they come back and they give me another qu fixed quantity with a price that doesn't work. And I said, no, no, you got to make me a curve and show me where that curve crosses my line. That says, this is what I want. So I've been teaching classes in economic order quantity to the, to the um, people who put out quotes for CMs. <laughs> Very frustrating. Well, everybody wants to be big, right? Big is supposed to be good, except what you don't want to have is I ordered a thousand pieces and then we're revving the design and we have a thousand throwaways or a thousand mods required or whatever that is. Well, and, you know, it's, we're, we're small. So, you know, the, the technical support is going to be one or two of us that are doing everything else as well, as well as packaging parts and assembling them and putting labels on them and sending them out the door. So, you know, we want to make sure that when somebody gets something that it's, it's solid and that they get a good piece of equipment and we don't say, please send it back so we can solder a blue wire on it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, one, Quick way to slow death, right? Is having to, having to mod all these things. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm in the queue. I'm in the queue. I will. I will. Uh, I will uh, wait till they become available, and then we'll have a have a play with it. And I don't even have a defined use for it, but I have some ideas, and uh, my ideas go more into um, situational monitoring. Uh, I'm going to use the audio capabilities to feed some measuring equipment and then and then also take the video off and i'm not so concerned about 4k as i am about programmability but i need to find a partner to help me with that so anyhow as randy is saying in the irc final questions before we round up our hour um, and, uh, and we should remind people of the various uh, rich i've told you before you know sub two hours and the name of the company remind us is sub two r but isn't there a one year two warranty or something? <laughs> oh no no no! It's two. So our parent company is Two R One Y, which does three um, D high definition, high speed, high definition imaging. That's the parent company. We spun out Sub Two R from that. At any rate, I think that if people Google for Sub Two R, you do end up finding what you want to find. Yes. So do that. Put yourself on the list because. Uh, You'll be joining the likes of us. We're all on the list. We're all on the list multiple times. Yes. Multiple times, yeah. But we're getting, you know, 
I know it's Jimmy, small. I, know, I appreciate your guys' patience, but we wanted not to slam something out that wasn't good. And I, I thank you guys for letting me sort of be proud of what we've we've, we've done and show it off because we finally got where I thought we could be. Just took longer than I. It, you know, it's a good story. It, it's uh, if if it's a space that people are interested in, it's a good story, and um, it'll be a tool that'll be a. Uh, I think the part that is particularly novel and interesting is that I think anybody who gets one and finds an application for it is going to be doing something interesting, and so it's a thread we want to follow because there'll be a lot of interesting stories along the way. I think as the camera rolls out into the people's hands. I- I know we will have been successful when somebody comes up to me in a couple of years and says, you'll never guess what I just did with your camera. <laughs> yeah. And at that point in time, I know we succeeded in what we started out to do. Mm-hmm. Also, you- it's not yet another VR camera. So that's true. Right. <laughs> it can be though. It will support dual, it'll support dual 4K sensors on, 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 uh, on one camera. I just want to tell people to go to sub2r.com. Or just Google it. You'll get to the same place. Uh, this, this is fascinating stuff. And uh, if we keep inviting you back, Rich, it's not by accident. We're following this with interest. And uh, I think that everyone who's into the VUC and what we've been doing all these years, 10 years plus, uh, is interested in this. So keep on doing what you're doing. Thank you. I appreciate you guys for having me back. All righty. I, I think it's high time that we heard from Jay oh. And uh, we're going to go to the mature audiences only. Ken, you can stay with us. I think you're old enough. Uh, I hope so. All right. So thanks to everybody who's participated. We'll be uh, going to the private mode in just a second, and we will talk about all of you people who are listening. Hey, that was the bleeding edge of the IP communications and VoIP community. We're at VUC.me on the web. Thanks to Simwood.com, who can turn you as a developer into a telco. Our host at PBX is provided by OnSIP.com. The site at VUC.me is on Bluehost.com. We use ZipDX.com for our wideband, full-featured conference bridge. And our local rate dial-ins are from Voxbone.com. Every Friday, 12 noon Eastern Time. See you next week. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.